Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. And what a whirlwind we are all living within. Last episode, I had Lisa from Red Poppy's Classroom on and we recorded that particular episode as we were coming out of the last lockdown. And I sent my thoughts and well wishes to Sydney, knowing that they were in this restrictive lockdown, even more restrictive to be fair than it was the last time I released an episode. And now Victoria. We're in lockdown 5.0 and I'd like to talk about that experience in terms of being notified because it was Thursday and may I start with saying that on Monday, our first day back after holidays, we were told that we no longer had to wear masks in class, which was just the best thing ever and Friday by lockdown. But by Thursday, there were some stories circulating from I think the ABC News and the Herald Sun that there was talks of a lockdown but nothing confirmed no details and we got that kind of information around well I got it at around 1 30 from my dad because you know they live for the news and they're all over it so I imagine that they would have gotten that information pretty early on in terms of it being released we had no confirmation one of our APs said to the students at about 3.10, we finished at 3.15, take your books home just in case. We don't know what's happening. And we were in meetings that night till about 4.30 and the consensus was the idea that if we are going to go into lockdown, potentially it would be a planning day considering we had no real notification. So we all left meetings at about 4.30 with that understanding that if we were going into lockdown, potentially it would be some kind of planning day because that tends to be what has happened at two minutes to seven o'clock that night got an email from the principal who had just come off his webex i think from the department saying that no it was not a curriculum day it was not a planning day it was full-blown remote learning and to be honest with you i'm not upset about that because i've started with my year eights and year twelves like hitting the ground running i think it's important to show that my expectations are what they are and that we are moving and we are working. So I'm not disappointed that we had a remote learning day and that I got to check in with my kids and I got to continue the work. But I think it's really important to note how little notification we got that at literally two to seven, we got confirmation from our principal that it was in fact a remote learning day and not a planning day. And we were expected at nine o'clock the next day to have lessons done and we were going and I'm sure that we're not the only ones I'm sure we're not the only industry that this is happening to but it's hard when you the expectation is that you know you've done it before it's remote learning off you go and as I said I'm not upset about it I just would like a little bit more time to plan and I I literally said in the last episode with Lisa teaching is the only profession that you have to do the work outside of the work hours in order to do the job. And so there is a lot of prep and planning. I mean, I was up, I think I put something on my Instagram stories at 10.30, still planning. And I put a poll up 
And I was nowhere near the only one doing it. So it just goes to show how stretched we are as educators and how much we're expected to pivot and just keep going. And, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. This episode is pretty much what it's like in the staff room or in a faculty meeting. So it's me chatting to two of my colleagues, Jen and John. We call him JR based on his initials in this conversation. And we're talking about why we believe English is important and why in particular we feel a text or a play called The Seven Stages of Grieving, which is about Indigenous stories, Australian Indigenous stories, why we believe it's important and what we hope our students get out of it. Now, if you are one of my students or a student from the school that I work at, well done for listening to this because I'm certainly going to be advertising that this is available for you to listen to. And this is literally like what we do in the staff room. I don't know if you're going to think we're super boring, but, you know, we talk about texts and we hope that students get certain things out of it. And we discuss the importance of English in our curriculum. And again, I'm sure if you're my student, you've heard those conversations around, why do we do this? And really it's about introducing different perspectives and encouraging and developing empathy and an understanding of the different journeys that people live in our world and that's really what I'm hoping to get to with this and quite a personal episode as well which you'll hear all about and it did make me reflect on the texts that I've really enjoyed studying and why and one of the main ones that I've loved is Stasi Land by Anna Funda which is still on the book list it's used as a comparative I think at the moment but we taught it as a text standalone text and I realized the reason I loved it so much is because it related a lot to me in terms of my upbringing because my mum is Hungarian and she's first generation here in Australia, Hungarian. And Hungarians were not all that well known in the 90s in terms of a country and culture. They tended to be much more around sort of Italians and Greeks in terms of understanding of what that particular country was all about or at least where it was on the map um and i used to get a lot of comments about you know hungry does that mean you eat all the time that you're really hungry and anna funda is german but lives in australia grew up in australia and goes back to germany to spend time in the eastern block of berlin in the 90s i think it is and she feels in a way she was never fully australian because she has this German heritage and she's, as I said, she speaks German, but then she goes to Germany and she looks German as far as she's concerned. She speaks German and straight away she's outed for not being German. And it's this idea that where does she fit then? And I think that that's why I love this text as well, because it's all this idea about how we identify as Australian and the Indigenous perspective within that as well, which is one that has been silenced for many years. So I love this book, love this conversation. I'm sure we'll get a lot out of it. If you want to support the podcast, please share this episode on social media, tag me at Educating Laura, and you can buy me a virtual coffee if you like. Link is in the show notes, but no pressure. Otherwise, enjoy the conversation and I'll catch you in two weeks. Hi, Jen and John. How are you? Good. Yeah, going well, thanks. Thanks for having us on. Pleasure. I'd love to start by asking you about your teaching experience. And I might start with you, Jen. 
Yeah, awesome. So I I would consider myself still a relatively new teacher, even though I've really been at it for 10 years now. I think I might be in my 10th year or 9th year. Who really knows? They just blend into each other. But I am English, history, and starting to delve into the world of sport as well, just with some changes in my personal life outside of school and just having some new interests. And yeah, I have worked across the New South Wales and the Victorian system. I started in New South Wales in a in a really... I guess prestigious uh, selective high school, which the workload was fairly intense. And then I moved to Victoria to be with my partner and I've been here for about six years. So from one selective state government school to another high performing state school here, it's been two very different experiences, but yeah, just enjoying the ride. How has the curriculum and the assessment things been different over the two states have you found? Yeah, it has been interesting. My first thought when I first came to Victoria was that I didn't think that the system was as rigorous, which will sound, yeah, and I don't mean it in, in any negative way towards the Victorian curriculum, but we just had to cover a lot more in New South Wales in year 11 and year 12. That's not necessarily a good thing. As I've taught VCA over the last couple of years, I think I've come to really value the focus that we have on being able to develop skills. And especially for me as an English teacher, develop a a kind of appreciation of the moral reasoning that is at the heart of the text that we study in English and the need to kind of explore that notion to, to make sure that we're not just educating for the end of year exam, but also thinking about, you know, what these students can take with them and how school and learning helps them develop just as an individual. So while, yeah, it's quite different, mm. I think both systems do a good job of doing that, of empowering kids to actually be thoughtful thinkers, but yeah, it has been, the workload's been a little less. <laughs> yeah, a bit more space, a bit more space in between in Victoria maybe. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. What about you, John? Uh, 38 years in teaching, some of that time spent in the country, most of that time spent in the city, some of that spent working in an independent school, most of the time spent working within the state system, teaching senior English, middle school geography, uh, sorry, middle school history with the focus on geopolitical, I guess, matters in history, but also uh, a real passion for Australian history. So on the back of that, I want to talk about what you believe the base knowledge is for Australian students by the time that they leave school in history, whether that's Australian and any kind of world history that you think is, is also really important for them when they leave. Uh, do you want me to talk about Australian history first? Yeah, yeah. please. Okay. All right. So they need to have some sort of an understanding as to the timeline of, uh, of the history and the fact that the, the history, particularly Indigenous history, is something which is still being unravelled. I guess you might be teaching kids who have a, a concept of pyramids and they might have a concept of, uh, I guess, other ancient periods in history, Romans and uh, Greeks and whatnot. And then they go through a phase in year eight where they're talking about medieval history and Vikings and Crusades and so on. And really, they're only going back a maximum of 5,000 years. And then you mm. introduce an Australian history concept, which uh, is somewhat paradoxical because we're told that we're a young nation, but in actual fact, and this depends on who you talk to, Indigenous history could stretch back 100, 120,000 years. I know that it's a, mm. a very safe bet these days to say 60 to 80,000 years. I mean, there seems to be general mm. consensus on that. And kids 
in my opinion, need to get their head around that aspect. Look, as well as the basics about about the fact that you know we were colonised, about the fact that we we actually became a nation on January the first, nineteen hundred and one, which is all, always brought up whenever we celebrate Australia Day. That's the day that we were settled as a a colony. The colony of New South Wales was established on January the twenty sixth, seventeen eighty eight, and these sort these are the sorts of things that need to be established as if you like, unequivocal facts and truths for kids before they walk out of high school. I think that's our basic responsibility or one of our basic responsibilities. And what do they need to know about the world around them? So not just the country that they live in, but also the greater world and the kind of history that is encompassed in the world? Well, again, if I can just talk about the British origins of Australia, together with British law, a Westminster system and whatnot, it's important that kids like appreciate that during this, this empire stage that effectively we were colonised along with, say, other countries in the world that were colonised. You know, kids need to be able to appreciate that the, the origins, the European British origins, the United States of America have got colonial origins. And that's a good starting point when thinking about, if you like, uh, the spread of, sort of Western civilization as we understand it today in the modern world. That's one thing. And the other thing that they need to be able to appreciate is just where we sit geographically and therefore how that influences our international politics. Kids need to know where we are on the map and they need to have some understanding, some appreciation some knowledge of those countries that occupy the same area of the map that we exist in because they have, uh, on one level, enormous implications for us in terms of trade, but also, of course, they have probably even more importance in terms of our security as we, you know, as we carry on our lives into the 21st century. So you, Jen, also have a history background and are delving into more sort of literature. I'd love to know over the time what some of your favourite texts have been to teach. Yeah, just having to think about what JR is saying there too and, you know, it's students needing that kind of basic knowledge of where our country sits. But I also think that there needs to be that awareness of how our views and values and, and how those the views and values of our, of our family, our primary family that we're slowly closely influenced by, how they have been created as a result of things like colonisation, not just colonisation, but, yeah, our place in the world, but also our connection to different countries all over the world too and how that Australian identity has kind of grown. Yeah, JR says some great things about that development of, you know, what what is an Australian? When when we picture an Australian, what does that look like? What kind of things does it mean? What do we do? What do we think? What what do we believe in? So I think the texts that have really stood out to me are the texts that explore those notions because the Australian identity is still one that is so influenced by our involvement and, and engagement in you know, the World War was the, the Anzac legend, isn't it, has created an image of what it means to be an Australian when that mm. image in itself isn't really reflective of our entire history. So I guess I, I'm jumping around, but I'm just trying to link back to what I was saying earlier about the importance of kind of a moral education in history and English, but, you know, both of those subjects combined. It's the the books that explore history 
through a particular lens or through from it from an experience that makes history real for students mm. are the books that I think have really drawn me in and they become self-reflective exercises as the students are looking at these books and thinking about what the themes are thinking about what the views and values are what ideas are explored we're not pushing a certain agenda we're not pushing a certain message they're able to interpret these perspectives and make their own ideas up about about what our image should be what what the Australian identity should be so it has been doing text which is something that I really appreciate about the Victorian system we used to do a lot of classics where I came from Shakespeare Mm. every year so we had a Shakespeare from year seven through to year 12 every year it was great in terms of students getting their heads around language but in terms of getting some more uh, contemporary text it it really didn't happen as much Um, so it's it's been great to come here and teach things like the seven stages of grieving and the longest memory is a comparative I really love teaching black diggers uh, when we do that Mm. as a comparative with the longest memory I just it gave me extra motivation to to try and search for my own understanding of what it meant to be the Australian that I'd see myself as. But I also think it, it really opened a lot of students' eyes to some hidden truths or maybe some truths that weren't quite based yet in our society. So I just found Black Diggers, yeah, amazing too. But Seven Stages has also been a great pair with it. So this is ultimately the big text we want to dis- we want to discuss the seven stages of grieving. It's relatively new on the book list. It only came on last year, as you were saying, and we do it as a comparative. I introduced this to the Year Twelves in like the last lesson, and I introduced it through various like blog posts and stories from African Americans as well as Aboriginal Australians, and then some scientific understanding around epigenetics and how we inherit trauma. And it was really interesting that my students said, but our history is not as bad. That was one of the first things that they said to me. I said, why do you think that? And they said, well, it's not as bad as what's happened in America. And I think that is such a huge starting point that students don't really know or that we are not really brave enough to really see what our history is because they don't want to see it as, as bad as another. And so what do you like to focus on, Jen, when you start talking about the seven stages of grieving and getting that context? Because it automatically, it is comparative, and it, but it becomes a comparison of history. Yeah, I think so. I, I try and make it real for them. I start with my own story and I talk mm-hmm. about the complexity of trauma. But yeah, the stuff that you came up with the science, I'm definitely going to be looking at that because I think it's a great <laughs> way in for them, particularly yeah. for some of them that aren't connected to a story. Some people want to hear stories. I've grown up in a family where storytelling has always been a big focus of who we are and the way that we remember each other, the way that we remember our that have come before is that we talk through stories and it's never been a, a purposeful thing it, it's just the way that we've always worked so I start with a, a bit of a story about my own trauma and I say that in you know kind of inverted commas because a lot of people would say to me but you haven't experienced any trauma I've lived a, a great life I've always had access to the things that I need I um, you know my parents were able to send me off to private education for the last two years of my schooling um, I'm from a really small country town in New South Wales uh, of about 3,500 people and so just to to get us to see the city and to 
think if we'd like to live in the city or in the country, they gave us that experience. That then gave me an opportunity to go to university in the city. And, you know, my life could have been a lot different if I didn't have those opportunities. I never really had to struggle for anything, really. So mm-hmm. When you look at my childhood, there's no there's no physical trauma there. But in the last, yeah, sort of five years, we have been looking at a lot of just old records of our family members. And we were looking at some photos one day after my great aunt passed away and my mom was showing me these photos of her grandmother on her wedding day. And she pulled up a photo of her grandmother with her great grandfather, with her father on her wedding day. And I looked at the photo and I said to my mom, mom, that guy's like, that guy's black. (laughs) Mom went, he's standing in the shade of that tree. And we, this has been a running joke in my family, right? The, The fact that that was my mom's first, first reaction to this realization. And Anyway, we looked into it a lot more and my uncle and I are yeah, currently kind of on this journey to figure out exactly what that is. But the the fact that our my, my history, I feel like who I am and what I was saying before, who I am as an Australian, I don't feel like I can define that. And to me, that is relatively traumatic. I don't know how I fit into this world and I, I really want to. So it's not a question of, am I Indigenous, am I not Indigenous? Yes, that would be great to know. It's more a question of where are the stories that I don't know? How did my grandmother come to be, my great-great-grandmother, sorry, my great-grandmother, how did she come to be in the relationship that she was in? How did her father get here? Uh, Was he always here? I don't know any of these things. And from a family where I've grown up talking about this is what your grandfather did when he was a child and this is where your grandmother came from and let's go down to the sheep paddocks where your grandmother worked when she was young. I've got all of those close stories, but I I don't know the rest of them. So um, for me, when we started looking at Seven Stages, that was the first thing that I wanted to do was to just talk about my own story and, and the fact that those hidden truths, how they can kind of warp your understanding of self and even though you might not seem like you're physically having any difficulties because of that. Um, Yeah, the questions that you might pose to yourself as a result of it. I think at the moment psychology is being kind of revolutionised to understand like people like Brene Brown are coming out to talk about trauma is not actually, you know, if you went through this experience you're traumatised and if you didn't you're not. Like it's such a sliding scale and also ultimately anything that creates real shame is technically a traumatic experience because it can imprint on your DNA, which is what we we're talking about with epigenetics. So it's such a hard one where you you feel as though a trauma has happened and yet you have to give some kind of explanation as to why someone else might not see it that way. At the end of the day, it's no one else's business. If you feel as though that's the experience that you've had and that is traumatic for you, then that then that's your truth, isn't it? And it's exactly that too. I think that it's the justification of why it's traumatic and it's just given me whole new insight. I grew up in a, in a community with a high Indigenous population. A lot of people that I grew up with are probably related to me in some shape or form, but I don't know that. And I think that's another mm. thing that kind of gets me as well when I think about a lot of things. Are there people out there that I, you know, could have helped and, and didn't help because I didn't know or is there some kind of responsibility there? And, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. We 
we're always trying to scale our trauma in terms of the people that we know or the other traumas that we know that have been experienced. And, you know, Indigenous people in our country have faced exactly that. You know, were you part of the mm-hmm. stolen generations? No. Well, then it can't be that bad. You know, there's mm-hmm. people just don't have any understanding for the, the individual history that people have. Mm. Over your history, has there been at some stage a sort of an identification that you are Indigenous? Are you still working that out? Like what has that looked like for your family? Or is it literally you've seen a photo and now you're questioning? Was there ever sort of something definitive in in your storytelling where you believe that your family was in fact Indigenous? There's, it's really coming down to, to a photo. Anytime that we ask stories about, and my grandmother who is the daughter of my great-grandmother who kind of started this journey mm-hmm. for us looking at her photos. If you asked her any question, she would flat out refuse any connection to any Indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. But it is, you brought it up earlier, it is the shame that's associated with that, particularly in small rural rural areas where Indigenous people just weren't of the upper class of society. And it's horrific. When when I look back on my childhood, it's really horrific that that was the case. I have a really good friend. I've grown up with her my, well, pretty much from high school on. We were always close. She was the one that actually first set me up, I suppose, with my now husband. <laughs> back in year eight, you know, when people would say, oh, oh you're going out with so-and-so now. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going out with him now. But she's absolutely <laughs> lovely. And uh, I remember, I still remember going to the school office with her one day and we had to hand in a, a form for an excursion. And then you had to hand in your form and your payment, got your receipt and left. And so I handed in my form and payment, got my receipt. She handed in a form and got hers. And I still remember that moment and then going, oh, she must be Aboriginal because she didn't have to pay for that. And that was just such a, yeah, I look back on it and I'm like, that. I can't even believe that I thought that. But when I was younger, that's that's what we thought. Oh, Aboriginal kids have to pay for excursions and stuff. And, like, yeah, we'll talk about it later on, I suppose, with this whole, whole idea of truth and, and what is truth because we had no idea what the implication of that was, you know, and maybe she did. I wouldn't know. I didn't ask the question. So we're still sorry, I'm walking around now, but we're still getting, getting there with it. My little brother had a, a bit of a different experience where, yeah, he had a bit of a closer link or, or nearly a link, I suppose, when he was training in an Aboriginal development squad. They kind of offered to look into it in a bit more detail, but never got around to it, I suppose, really in the end. So my uncle and I, yeah, still on that journey, but um, fingers crossed we'll find out one of these days. I just want to know if there's people I can talk to. That's the biggest question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Absolutely. What do you think about all of that, John? That's that's a big story, Jen. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. Well, it's a, it's a great story. And if I could just sort of compare the way in which I would have introduced the text this week to my kids. Mm. I talked about the, the power of language. Mm. I talked about the end of the book or the end of the play, I should say. I talked about the fact that at the end of the play, it finishes on a note of hope. And the fact that sorry is written across the sky, and uh, and I, mm-hmm. I, I identified that in a in a colonial society where the rule of British law is everything, if it's not written down, it doesn't count. Therefore, the fact that sorry is written written across the sky has even, if you like, 
more significance than what it otherwise would have in terms of a hope, not just for Aboriginal people, but for the society in general. And the reason why I mention that is because, and this ties in with listening to Jen and listening to her story, is, is, is that for the people who, for instance, are colonised and for whom their stories are lost, the dominant culture fills in the gaps of those stories. And so mm-hmm. one example of that, of course, is the assumption that this girl who you stand next to, this friend of yours, must be Aboriginal. I mean, that's not just your assumption, that's society's assumption, because it all fits, if you like, within an umbrella of disparagement for Indigenous people, which um, Indigenous people have felt for the last 200 years. Whites have made assumptions about them in the large part, and Blacks haven't been able to have an input into correcting those assumptions because they're powerless. And therefore, they're not happy about it. They don't necessarily accept it. But they're bridled with these stories, which are then that, that, that whites say are now your story. This is your story. Whether it be, you know, the fact that your surname now just happens to be the name of the local squatter in the area or the local superintendent of police. And that, you know, that's how Aboriginal people basically come to own their the surnames that they have. You know, have look across the state of Victoria, for instance, you know. I just think of Austins and Briggses and it, it doesn't matter who it is. It'll be that that name is not that original Aboriginal name. That is not their original story. And so that's that's the way in which I introduced to kids that stories are important. But what you have to also understand is this is this is a text as to as um, the longest memory. It's these are texts about power. Mm. And and if you are the powerful, you own the truth. And most importantly, it, the powerful get to document the truth and they get to document. And the part of the truth is the history. So it's mm. important that they make that link. Power, truth and the documentation of that truth in some instances. And that's exactly And that's the experience that we're having is the documentation. It It's impossible to follow because it, it's being rewritten for the purposes of what it needs to be. I mean, Alice, my great-grandmother, her wedding certificate is literally two lines. It's her name and her husband's name, and that's it. And I, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> There's no mm. father's name and, yeah, boat records of a family coming over. They don't have the great-grandfather's name on it, but, you know, the rest of the people are on it. So I don't know where he fits in when, when he joined that family, if he was already part of that family, who would know? It's yeah, it's the difficulty of following those. But but I think, JR, like one of the biggest things that you're saying too, that significance of the people that have the power are the ones, yeah, that write the history. And now we have a movement where that is changing. There, mm. There is, you know, the, the knowledge of the power and words. I even think of watching the State of Origin on Wednesday night because, you know, I'm just bringing down New South Wales win. Might just mention it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Josh had very often, so go for it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy it when it does. I tell you what, <laughs> the, the era of Brad Fittler, I'm gonna love it. But Latrell Mitchell, you know, and Josh Addo Cart, like just rewriting this this image of what we expect from you know young Aboriginal male leaders too. But um, Josh Addo, that's a different story. Josh Josh Addo Carr had Redfern written on his taped wrist and acknowledged that after a try at one point you know just that that connection to home and 
where he feels that connection to. And I just thought the powerful voices in the past have taken away that voice, but now, and that's one of the biggest things, like JR said, that comes up in the play with that thought of hope at the end, now hopefully there's more power behind those voices that are coming up. There are plenty, plenty of elements out there in Australian society that are pushing back too at the moment. So we, we, we're living in interesting times. Hmm. What do you think in terms of originally it was Black Diggers, now it's Seven Stages of Grieving. What were the best parts of these texts that you've loved to teach in terms of really getting an understanding of Indigenous history and, and the storytelling and rewriting history from stories? John? Oh, Okay. <laughs> Oh, man. Look, look, lots of things. Just picking up on the power of family and connection in terms of helping people, if you like, maintain a sense of resilience. The other thing which is quite striking about this these texts is the way in which people can be annihilated, effectively annihilated psychologically as a result of that disconnection from country um, but family predominantly. And so that's one of the things that I find is really redeeming. It's about these texts. Is that, is that human, if you like, suffering, it, it can be, if you like, healed and nurtured through connections to love. It's one of the things that I find enables people. I think I read something today about grief. Grief is the price that's paid for love. So, mm. and you wouldn't trade in love for anything. So for those that grieve, at least they're left, you know, with a, a stronger people as a result of that experience of love. So that's one of the things that I like to talk about when discussing how the powerless discover their power. Mm. That's pretty important. Yeah. What would you say, Jen? Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think like you're saying too, we get a greater sense of that maybe, yeah, not just hope, but um more kind of the healing that can happen within seven stages. Whereas when it was Black Diggers, I think it was a little bit harder for the kids because they did feel, without putting the word to it, I'm sure that a lot of my students did feel an immense sense of guilt Mm. because they have effectively been a part of the history that has, you know, allowed that kind of power to, to take over. And that is something that I talk about in my classes a lot, that this is, you know, we, we analyse these texts and we explore these ideas, not for the purpose of making you all, you know, get to the end of it and say, wow, how horrific is Australian history and all things British and we should just renounce our British history. <laughs> you know, that's that's not what we're trying to do, but it is more so to get to the, the nitty-gritty elements of, what we are as human beings, what is our human condition. And and like JR said, our human condition is to love. It is to grieve when we lose people that we love and kind of owning that process as something that will shape you as a person, but that there are ways to heal um, Mm. and that it's not as negative as it might appear. And I think it also encourages them then to take a look at their own personal knowledge and awareness of, yeah, our history and maybe look into it a bit more to form their own views. Like we said, not trying to make them agree with a perspective that we have or a perspective that even the authors are pushing, but more to give them a chance to to look at areas that they might want to explore in their own time. Let's look at this idea of depiction of truth, specifically in the text. JR, you and I had a good chat 
the other day about I think it was the funeral story. You know how the woman comes back for the funeral um, and mm. wanting to find family. I'd love to think of some other examples in which you believe the text talks about truth, manipulation of truth, how we internalise other people's truths, things like that. There's certainly the scene where the police, if you like, doctor the truth of the young man who's mm. uh, assaulted and, and killed. Um, and again, this ties into this notion of our those who have the power determine what the historical record is going to be or the legal historical record is going to be. And of course, that's a, that's a strong parallel with the longest memory. Mm. Of course, it's the it's the, the editorials, the Virginian editorials, of course, that determine what black attitudes are and those, those attitudes or those thoughts that are correct and those that need to be discouraged and also disparaged. So that's one example that I can think of that uh, stands out very, very strongly as an example of, of how people yeah, control the narrative, those who are in power. What about you, Jen? What ones stand out to you in terms of truth, manipulation of truth and and finding truth in the text? I think the ones that have always stood out to me when I'm teaching it, it's the scenes that involve the Camillo language um, because for a lot of students it, it throws them off a little bit. You know, they see the words and they're like, we, we don't know exactly how to say these words. And I'm like, you don't need to know how to say them. What you need to know is the, the, is the meaning behind these words. But why is this language used? Oh, because it, you know, it, it's their language, so they can say their thoughts in words that mean something to them. I'm like, that's exactly right. So, you know, rewriting history by allowing people the voice, not just a voice, but their actual voice, the voice that they identify with. So, the purification scenes, I think, for me, just yeah, brings about the truth and and allows us insight, cultural insight. And if I do say anything that is yeah, offensive to anyone. I do apologise in advance because my education is is not as thorough as it should be either. But it's even things like Nana's story. And in Nana's story, there's a lot of reflections on the way that her upbringing has affected her identity, that, you know, there's there's so many elements of Indigenous culture in the way that they mourn, in the way that they come together as a family, that everyone is there for each other, that they cry in their own time, but when they cry, they've got the support of their loved ones there too. But also things that have been brought about as a result of her being brought up in a white community and, and being brought up, you know, as a result of assimilation, that she's a, a God-fearing woman. Yeah. She, yeah, is, is scared of the government, you know, that there's there's that fear of people controlling her. And I think that the, the scenes that really stand out to me are those that make these histories personal enough that the kids can connect with it. Mm. But even like reconciliation or reconciliation when they break it up and breaking up that word to really think about the implications of that for people of a different of a different cultural background. Do you think that the students are more competent and more confident with the American history than they are with the Australian when you start getting into the text? You have to teach more about the Australian history than the American, do you think? Yeah, look, I think it's visualised. When you start talking about the American history elements, they can rattle off movies. You know, they can say, oh, mm. yeah, it's like Django Unchained. Yeah. It's like, you know, Leo DiCaprio's character. They, they get it because they've seen things. 12 Years a Slave, they kind of get it. Mm. Whereas we haven't really had those kind of honest 
even films created, something like High Ground that was created really recently, Simon Baker, isn't it? Yeah, a great film, you know, in terms of just showing what could have been, like JL said earlier, it's it's a perspective, it's a historical perspective and we have to be aware of that when we watch these films. But I think for a lot of Australian students, they watch Australian films and think, oh, yeah, that might have happened but they watch American films and they just believe that is what happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite know how to fix that. What do you think, JR? Well, I was just thinking um, when I started the debate to, or started the discussion today and I was talking about colonialism and I was, we were talking about so the things that connect us to, say, the American experience. We're both colonial societies, but, of course, we know that the, the 20th century was the American century and effectively you know, they were, they, they and they still are, you know, the major cultural imperial force. And, um, and I was just thinking about the, you know, the, 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 the ironies of that, just the fact that, for instance, um, one of the things you've got to correct with kids as much as they think that they know more about, um, say, the black American experience just because of, you know, film and hip hop and things like that is, is that you've got to correct with them that, that they're not, they're not the indigenous people of america you know that there's once again a bit like the a bit like the aboriginal people here there's there's a whole kind of silenced invisible uh nation or not nation nations 500 nations i understand of say north american indians and their experience of oppression you know is it could be written in tomes and produced in films i think during the civil rights era maybe films like Billy Jack, for instance, were doing the rounds in the late 60s and the beginning of the 1970s, but they've kind of disappeared from view. And from our kids' point of view, to think about, say, North American Indians in the sense that they think about the ignorance of North American Indians is is pretty much a, a mirror image of their ignorance in a lot of cases about mm. Aboriginal people. So that would be certainly one of the things that I would say about that. Just one other point. I can remember about 10 years ago, we taught the, the Kate Granville novel, Secret River. You probably were teaching it too, okay? And, and again, this isn't necessarily a criticism. This is not a criticism of kids. This is, this is just kids being kids. But I, I can remember kind of being astounded by, I think it was just a lack of empathy for what happened to Aboriginals. And I only say that because in 1978, when I did my HSC, I would have studied a text called A Kindness Cup by an Australian author, Thea Astley. And and that was about Aboriginal people who were effectively oppressed, massacred, and then their, I suppose, their descendants silenced in a fictitious Queensland town. And there was uh, a moment in it where it describes people being pushed off a cliff. And of course, there's moments of massacre in uh, the Secret River. And, And I remember thinking, they need a jolt. And one of the jolts that they, I figured they needed is the fact that they, they go through their whole human lives never having a conversation with an Aboriginal person. Kids are, always mm-hmm. quick, kids are quick to point out to you the guest speakers that come and talk to them in primary schools or lower levels of secondary school. But they, it's often rare that they'll have a conversation with an Aboriginal person. And I had links and I went to the trouble of uh, organising somebody who's quite well known, and that was Kutcher Edwards. And unfortunately, things came to pass where Kutcher, unfortunately, couldn't come to the school to talk to kids, which was very, very sad because he's, he's an incredibly powerful presence. 
and he would have talked to them about his Stolen Generation experience. But I can still remember him saying to me, alerting me to the fact that there are far more Australian families that have black blood running in them than they realise. And again, it, it, when I think about this now, you know, 10 or plus years later, I would think about, yes, the likelihood of shame. I would mm. think about the, the silences. I think about, I think about the fact that in that, in that story, that scene of Nana's funeral that you were talking about, Jen, about how part yeah. of the grieving for the, for the, for the main character on stage is the fact that that Nana is going to take the stories about her with her to the grave. Mm -hmm. and she's, in other words, there are going to be these stories that she hasn't even heard about, about her life, because her, her grandmother hasn't told her yet, and they're gone as well. You know, if you take away people's links, if you take away their links to other family, if you take away their links to the land, obviously, which, of course, is what we've heard about, I suppose, all our, all our lives as Australians when thinking about the Aboriginal experience, you, you seriously take away a person's identity. And it's so important at every opportunity in the study of these texts to try and get kids, as you said, to, to reflect on their own experience, um, to imagine their life without, for instance, on one level, language, or to imagine their life, yes, to imagine their life without, without one, of the, you know, one of the intrinsic languages that are going to enable them to know themselves, let alone imagine their lives without connection to family members. Yeah, that acknowledgement of language, though, JR, like I know we've said it before tonight, but the significance of that, I taught a student when I was living in England, a girl whose mother was French, father was Welsh, and she was learning in English, the school was English. So I was walking around one day, she was having a conversation with her parents and she was angry and she was yelling at her mother in French and she was yelling at her father in Welsh. <laughs> and, but they were the words that she needed in those moments. She could only articulate what she needed to articulate to her mother in French and she could only articulate what she needed to articulate to her father in Welsh. And I think I think of that every time I go through this play as well, like, when you take away someone's language, you take away their ability to be able to not just mm. know who they are, but to be able to actually express themselves in the way that they want to. And, you know, we, we talk about precision of language with our students. You have to use the mm. right word at the right time. You really have to think about what the meaning yeah. is behind that word. What happens when a person can't say what they really want to say? Yeah, very tough. You're right because, I mean, we teach EAL students all the time and we know that we have to scaffold, we know that we have to modify tasks because the language is not natural. How on earth can we expect people whose language has been removed to be able to be as powerful as they potentially are when they cannot speak as clearly and as articulately as they would like to and for that, knowledge, for that language to not even be acknowledged as real and true language? For so long too. I mean, how dismissive. Yeah, absolutely. And and a learning culture that we do expect learning to happen in a particular way. You know, you line up in two lines, you walk into the classroom, you stand behind your chair until you're quiet. Mm. Okay, it, it's great. You know, it works. It's it's a system that we might need to have. I don't know, but we we are really uh, not valuing the fact that there's so many different ways to learn, and particularly for we are still a young nation. We, we are still very, very young in our behaviours and you're taking kids out 
of a world that they knew even even though they don't even it's a subconscious world that they knew right they they don't know why they learn in the way that they learn but that is the way that they learn and we expect them to just fit the mold and I think that's where so much of this these gaps happen they Mm. they lose their stories they lose their power and as a result they lose their confidence in who they are and what they want too which is the saddest part of of what's happened with so many Indigenous kids in our communities. You made the comment before, John, about that lack of empathy. I think that's a really good point because I think that students are very good at compartmentalising themselves. That's a story, that's a book, that's not real, that's not something I need to connect with, that's purely an assessment, it's purely what I'm writing an essay on. But at the end of the day, the whole point of English curriculum really is to allow an entrance into a perspective that is not your own to generate empathy and to generate understanding So if that's not already happening, how do you think we can do that? Or what do you think the blocks are that we're having? I mean, that's a huge question. I'm I'm going to put you on the spot. But I think you're right. I think it's a huge part of the fact that we are getting such disconnection because students aren't making the link themselves that they are supposed to empathise. I've always made the links between whatever I'm doing and other things that I see going on around me in in a contemporary area. So... I'll give you an example. If I'm talking about Macbeth, for instance, as I was to kids the other day, I bring in an example of Neil Danaher, the footballer currently suffering from muscular dystrophy, and play them this speech that he makes to Melbourne footballers about about having moral courage, about the necessity of doing the right thing. Don't worry, I'll get this. I'll get this back to these other two texts. But we trust you. We trust you. But essentially, if I'm looking for I'm looking for a way in which kids are going to be able to empathise with somebody who's quite topical at the moment within their world. So, if you're a, a Melbourne, if you're a Melbourneian in winter, you're going to be connected in some way to football. And of course, given the publicity that Neil Danaher had in the last three weeks, it's pretty pretty clear that they there would have been a curiosity about him. That's for sure. And so, for him to be able to talk about the need to do the right thing. And then for him to talk about and do the right thing, not by himself, but do the right thing for himself and by others is an opportunity to talk about how you give your life meaning and you provide hope. So there he is with a disease which he said is going to kill him. But that's not to say that all hope is lost. And therefore, that's not to say that a sense of existential meaning, if you like, is lost. So hope equals, if you like, value. And of course, it's all, you know, interwoven with plenty of love, love for what he's doing, love from his family, returning his love for, to his family and new, a new grandchild, I think is part of the story that he tells. So interweaving, if you like, what's going on in the contemporary world, linking it back to what's being learnt within the text and then getting kids to apply it to their own lives is one of those things that that I, I have a sense is kind of hastens the the maturity process. Uh, It it also comes down to your ability as a teacher to be able to tell that story, in this case about Anil Danaher, in an interesting way before you actually show the clip. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, I think the longer I go on, the more I realise that I'm fundamentally just a storyteller. It doesn't matter what the subject is. Subject Mm -hmm. could be environmental science or geography. It doesn't have to be history or literature, but it essentially comes down to our ability to be able to tell stories in meaningful ways. As we're talking, for instance, about 
about these characters in these texts, these these black people in these texts. I mean, one of the things that I brought in, and I don't know if I'll do it this year because I don't know if they'll have the same power, but one of the things that I, I brought in in recent times is uh, footage of, uh, is it Rosalie Kunif? She, when we're talking about uh, films, she was, uh, she played Jeddah. She was the young 20-year-old Jeddah from a 19, early 1950s or mid-1950s Australian film about the outback where, you know, a, a, an Aboriginal uh, warrior, you know, he kidnaps this girl and that's Jeddah and uh, eventually they, they jump over the edge at Catherine Gorge or something. Um, anyway, the bottom line is she turns up on a Q&A panel one night and talking about racism and um, she was talking about the way in which others are telling the story for her. And in order to define herself, she immediately and passionately just erupted in Aranda language. Mm. And so you were sitting at home watching this. God knows what the impact was like sitting in the, in the, in the studio. But essentially, through her speaking her own language in that moment, she was remade. Like you saw her as a completely different person and you empathised with her, you know. You immediately were able to kind of, she did just didn't impose and impress you. You were immediately were able to empathise with her sense of a frustration about being culturally defined in all sorts of other ways that were imposed on her by the dominant culture. It was fascinating absolutely fascinating that's one of the things that i will do this year i will look for links for instance uh, where aboriginal people talk about their own experience in 2021 and 2020 in order to get kids to to put them be able to put themselves in their shoes what about you jen how do we encourage kids to empathize with perspectives that are not their own it is really tough because i do think that even in my own education i didn't get there when I was in high school and now I'm desperate to do it <laughs> for my students because I feel mm. like I have to give them that, you know, and, and that's more been a part of my story as well, I suppose, and what, well, the journey that I'm on. I think JR is one of the best at, at it for the exactly the reason that he just said, trying to find those kind of links to what might be happening in their worlds right now, what they can kind of connect to and then trying to get them to apply it to their own life. Mm. And that's, that's the whole thing about being a teacher is that you can't just stick with, I got this article 10 years ago and it still works. It doesn't. We, we are speaking to different mm-hmm. students, in, in, mm-hmm. yeah, influenced by different things all the time. So just being ready to kind of look for those examples, I think, and like JR said, to tell the story. But I guess I have found that a personal story makes a big difference. And, you know, some other mm-hmm. very amazing educators that I get to work with, like Cam, who has been on Laura's podcast before as well. Yeah. He always says we have to be vulnerable as teachers. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he's been a real eye-opener for me this year. That idea of vulnerability, I feel if we can be vulnerable in our stories, in our experiences, and getting them to see as well that the the journey to becoming an empathetic human is a lifelong journey, but we all have to start somewhere and being vulnerable with maybe our own failures on that journey too is sometimes sometimes an effective starting point. I must admit, I started with these texts by actually acknowledging the fact that my own Indigenous history and knowledge of, especially in my own education, I was educated in the 90s, was incredibly fractured 
and I think now in some ways is just blatantly inaccurate. And that was one of the first things I said when I started introducing it because I said I am currently doing the learning A, to teach you, but A, to sort of reteach myself and to ensure that I'm I'm a much more empathetic and knowledgeable Australian that is conscious about the land that she lives on because I didn't get that opportunity at school and I think we're doing a better job but we've still got a lot to go. I mean, the fact that we've got these U12s that still have so much gaps in their own knowledge means that we do have more to more to do. But that was one of my first things that I said to them is that I might get things wrong. There will be gaps in my understanding. If there's something that I don't know, I will find it out or you can find it out for me. But I was very open and honest about the fact that I'm not going to be the pinnacle of knowledge in this and I'm definitely learning with them. Yeah, and and we will continue to. And I think like one of the other big things that JR said too was the significance of or or the importance of hearing Aboriginal voices. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's one of the the best ways to be empathetic too. I took a a small group of only 25 students from my previous school who were all of Indian and Asian background um, to Central Australia on a trip it was a small group trip. There was only two teachers. We were both young teachers as well. These Asian and Indian students had, had not seen an Aboriginal person before. Yep. yep. So we got to Alice Springs and we were staying in a school and working, just doing some community work in this school. And the very first day that we rocked up, school bell rang and two kids ran out from a classroom and climbed under the fence. <laughs> And went to run away and they turned around and they saw my students playing basketball and they both came back and they said what are you guys doing and we we're like we're just playing some basketball and they're like can we play and at the end of the week they they had they, they formed this great relationship with this one student and at the end of the week we found out that that was the first week that that student had attended school all day every day for five days of the week purely so he could spend time with these kids. And they they were amazing. They just listened. They just sat down and they just listened to the kids tell stories and talk to them and they just developed friendships. And those students went back to that school, really changed from that experience. So I often think back to those moments and I'm like, if only I could, if only I could get them there, you know. Yeah. Take them on a quick trip. Give them some kids to connect to. Give them some stories to hear. It could be a totally different story. So, yeah, just the power of voice. Yeah. I want to bring up Dark Emu because I think this is a very good example of truth, who's telling the truth, the power of particular voices over others. I had Kayla Cartledge on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who is an Indigenous woman in Victoria, and she recommended Dark Emu as a fantastic text to teach and to have in schools. It's currently getting a lot of flack at the moment, especially in the media, saying that Bruce Pascoe is ultimately incorrect, that the book is being debunked. And I would just like to have your opinions because this is, again, different versions of truths, different people in powerful positions deciding what's accurate and what's inaccurate. And I think qualifications is a big thing in that too. If you're not qualified enough, you don't have enough education academically, people seem to see that your voice is less valid. What do you guys think about Dark Emu, what's going on and playing out in the media currently? Uh, Personally, I see Dark Emu as an example of, of what we've seen as one 
view purported by one version of the media, and I'll just categorise them by just saying the right wing. But right wing mm -hmm. um, media houses, publications and um, digital and television, and they'll be looking for opportunities in order to discredit Bruce Pascoe. So they've done it in the past in terms of his Aboriginal identity, and they're currently doing it with this text. Personally, I've read Dark Emu, and, and I find that its hypothesis is an interesting one, and I don't think that anybody has any doubt, for instance, that Aboriginals seasonally would have, would have harvested different types of foods from different parts of their area. Now, whether or not people want to say, well, that's just straight hunter-gatherer or it's somehow there's a grey area between that and, and actually tilling it and nurturing it in such a way so that, you know, it could be, and we're coming down to semantics here, it could be categorised as some form of agriculture. Well, that's, that's for another debate. But essentially, mm. I haven't taken too much notice of it. In terms of the academics, which have come up with this, that's fine. But what, and, and clearly, they're well qualified. I don't think it's been uh, reported too readily in those same right-wing, I suppose, forums that Pasco is saying, well, I welcome this. It's all about just taking the knowledge forward. I mean, as we said before, mm. in our own classrooms, you know, there's gaps in our knowledge. That's the nature of Australian history particularly when we're talking about Indigenous history. There are just going to be big gaps. So anything which advances the knowledge, that's all important. I brought this in just to hold that up. Do you see her name? Marcia Langton? Sure. Yep. Okay. So, yep. so if you're looking says, at, yes. um, I guess, spokespeople over the last 40, 40 years, 40 to 50 years, I suppose, in the political debate, She's a formidable voice, Marcia Langton. And she would, she's, she's surprised me in some respects because she was a great supporter of Bruce Pascoe. But I don't know if she necessarily supports him as an individual, supports the fact that he's representative of what she sees is just another way of oppressing an Aboriginal voice. So uh, she has come out in recent times in support of him in his right to be able to express. And I, and I find that that's mm -hmm. significant from my point of view in terms of understanding, if you like, the broader picture. But overall, yeah, it's, Dark Emu is a particular view, but it, just because it's been discredited by some academics who have a different point of view, or I should say, just because it's been challenged by academics who have a different point of view, I don't think that they're, mm. they're, this assumption or this assertion that some people in the media are making that therefore it's automatically discredited becomes the new truth. And that, let's face it, that's what we're talking about in terms of one of the major themes, who owns the truth. That's right. And that's in terms of what you were saying about creating links, I think it's a very important one because it is it is current at the moment in the media that this is the version that we are not accepting or this is a version that is certainly very, very criticised and you know, look, I can only speak from a science perspective and an English perspective. I've not taught much history, but I've taught human evolution for many years and I have in my time had the textbook rewritten because there has been a new discovery. And I just think when it comes to history, we're constantly finding new things mm -hmm. and there's no 
one way it could be interpreted because those people at that time no longer exist. And so there has to be a version of interpretation always. And I, as I said, from a science perspective, I see that as so much in human evolution where currently they believe there's now mm. another version of humans that has been mm. discovered that they didn't know about before and that's going to completely rewrite human evolution mm. and the way that we interpret how we've evolved. And so there is always going to be that opportunity for, well, is this correct or is this one way that we're looking at it or is this the way that makes the most sense to me based on my own biases? You know, it's a really hard one, history. And as you say, like, the the victors are the ones Always. that write it. Always. And it's just another example of those voices, like JR said, those voices being oppressed just because it's an Aboriginal perspective that all of a sudden it can't be right. Like, I think that's mm. the thing that frustrates me the most about all of this, yeah, controversy surrounding Dark Emu. I know I gave it to my husband to read and he was furious after he finished mm. reading it. No, not because you know, that he might be wrong, he might be right. But if he's right, why don't we learn about this stuff? That's what he was frustrated about. Why don't I know about these things already if this could have potentially happened? And we're more than happy to read any other scientific papers or any other interpretations of a specific text that we're reading and analysing at school. We're more than happy to read those and talk about what we agree with and what we don't agree with. But it does seem to be this unfairly weighted disbelief that, yeah, an Aboriginal voice might be right. And that's probably me getting a little bit emotional about it, but I I do find that's kind of the thing that gets me. And like you're saying, things can be rewritten and, and we get new knowledge all of the time. And there is historical and scientific evidence behind the hypotheses that Bruce Pascoe is making. So can we not... Just give it the credit that it deserves for that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a theory, right? At this, at the end of the day, there there is evidence of which he has interpreted into a theory, and that's where we sit mm. at the moment. And that's what we do in history all the time, isn't it? Let's look at some images yeah. and let's make some interpretations about how these people might have lived by looking mm. at these images. It's it's the fact that not everything is written down you know, to tell us exactly every little thing that happened and. Yeah, I think I was watching Gardening Australia as, I don't know why I watch so much Gardening Australia now, but I was watching Gardening Australia the other day. And uh, an Aboriginal Australia, my goodness. Oh, no. Look, I'm getting some great knowledge, great expertise in it. But uh, an Aboriginal yeah. said on it, we all live on the sa- in the same country. We all live in Australia. What's wrong with learning more about our, our um, land, the way that it works? Mm. And if there's an interpretation, if there's a perspective there that might give us some extra insight into that, climate change is real. We know that climate anxiety is incredibly real. If we can't use these interpretations, perspectives, historical data, the scientific data that's underpinned it, if we can't use all of that to try and make our lives better, then I think that's that's a huge problem with the human race. Mm. (laughs) Yep, that's right. I've got two more questions and we're going to move away from the specific text. I want to talk to you guys about what your beliefs are. And the second last question I have is around education as a system. If you had a magic wand and you could change it to make it exactly what you wanted, what would you do? How would you change education? You can go first. (laughs) (laughs) I ponder on that, JR. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, Give me smaller, whatever. 
Yeah, it's that's a really tough question, isn't it? I mean, I think, and this is probably my weakness as a teacher, I suppose, too, and what some students will really enjoy about my classes and what some students will find really frustrating about my classes, but always trying to, to bring it back to the fact that when you step outside of the walls of this institution, you have to be someone that's going to contribute positively to your world, the, the world that you live in, the relationships that you create, you know, the little worlds that you exist within in, in all of your different things, your relationships, your work environment. You want to step out into those worlds and be a positive influence in some shape or form. So, I, and I think the curriculum does expose areas for this, but yeah, I think I wish there was a really easy way to make education about giving students the power to learn who they're going to be and how they can positively impact the world around them. But I don't know what the easy solution to that is. I yeah, love- I don't think there is one. Yeah, I don't think there is one either, but I'd love to see just more of a focus on learning from, you know, diverse groups, all of the different groups that we have around us. And again, I don't know how to do that either in a way that works for all environments and all systems, but yes, that's my biggest thing, I think. And like more investment in like global communities, like around, is that what you mean too? Like having more connections outside of just the institution? Yeah, and that's a perfect way to word it, actually. Global communities, you know, how do we connect with we we did a really good job of this more so in New South Wales. We talked, to, well, we had a, a great connection with a intensive English centre that was made up of students that were refugees and asylum seekers. So our students were exposed to a completely different world, a completely different set of beliefs and experiences, and they were better for it. Same thing as mm. in Central Australia. So, yeah, how do we kind of build bridges between different communities so that they can learn more from each other and not just from the people that have been teaching in the school that they go to for the last 15, 20 years, yeah. Totally. And I think that leads into that idea of, you know, anyone can be an authority if it's their own story and their own perspective. I think that's very powerful. Mm. What about you, JR? Systemic change. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Sorry, Jen. (laughs) Need a moment to gather the mindful thoughts. Uh, I said, I said to somebody the other day that it, it's very frustrating that when I started teaching, class sizes were twenty-five, and they haven't got any mm-hmm. left. And so, mm-hmm. what's happened is, is that we've had uh, uh, studies that have been released that say, oh, there are no, there, there aren't going to be any real improvements to learning outcomes below class sizes of twenty-five. And we all we know because we all teach that that's just rubbish. Mm -hmm. the the fact that the more help the more individual help that you can give the kids the better but more so than that I think the the more in which they feel as though they're actually visible within the classroom and therefore just by their visibility that 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 has an impact on their sense of worth within the classroom I think that's so important I mean it's one of the it's one of the major things where that causes kids to get quite down, or at least in my day, it used to cause kids to get quite down to find themselves as one of you know many within, say, uh, an arts faculty lecture. Now, all of a sudden, they're one of 800 or something, and you feel as though you disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I just think, pairing that right back, if we could have class sizes much less, then kids would just have a much better experience of their education. So that'd be the first thing. Um, 
What do you think that ideal number would be, John? I don't know, but I do know this. I do know that in small classes, and let's just take a lit class, for instance, back in the old days when schools were kind of welded on to providing a kind of a, a classical grammarian style of education, high schools, it wouldn't matter how low those numbers were of kids who picked it, high schools would always offer a year 12 literature class at matriculation level. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> people were led to believe, well, the smartest of kids did lit. I would say they weren't necessarily the smartest of kids, but the, the educational experience was far more intense and allowed for far greater growth by virtue of the fact that it was always a small class. Yeah. So mm. that's been an observation over the years. And, you, and, and the same thing used to apply back in the old days. I don't know what it's like these days, but pure and applied classes, which became one and two, now it's specialists and methods. So they tend to be smaller classes. And once again, those kids got a, a, a much more personalised experience of maths. And, and it is, to my way of thinking, it's the elephant in the room. Get class sizes smaller. You know, just employ more teachers, mm -hmm. but that won't happen. Um, what else? Uh, you know, that's not ideal. That, that's the that's the wand. Okay, what else? What else would you would you do if you had the go idea? out of your way to take anxiety out of education? Do that by, and you you've talked about this, Jen, by just bringing in other voices into the classroom, just valuing other people to bring in other perspectives because what it does is it allows kids to to actually see firsthand that they are the recipients of other sources of information. So the more people you bring in, uh, and some people might say, yeah, but they can access this information on the computer. It's not the same deal. It could, because what you want is you want to bring in, you want to bring in adults who respect the students as learners. And therefore, once kids realize that they're accessing other sources of information from other teachers or other educationalists, I think they start to take the whole process much more seriously and they start to take themselves much more seriously as learners. Is mm. I was fortunate enough to hear Kath Walker come and talk to us one day. She wasn't announced, Aboriginal poet, activist for the 1967 referendum. Some was a famous militant activist, Dennis Walker, he sort of modelled his, his politics on the Black Panthers in America. But mm. Kath Walker, Ujuru uh, Nunaku, as she came to be known in protest after the fact that the government didn't come to the party in terms of acknowledging Aboriginal land rights in 1988, she was somebody who had a big impact on me. And, I, and, it, and it was a fleeting moment, but it was another one of those outside adult voices that came into a school that mm. made me think and reflect and it's ended up being lifelong learning. That's another thing that I've observed. And, and look, that getting back to our text, you know, that's one of the things, for instance, which is so valuable about having an Indigenous educator come in and talk to history classes. I can tell them, but show them, you know. So all those other things, you know, empathy, for instance, grow. But unwittingly, you just take the anxiety, you take a level of anxiety out of out of learning and once that happens i shouldn't say anxiety out of learning i should say anxiety out of education once that happens learning does happen learning happens i think there has to be a redefinition of success though and what success looks like in order for those voices to be valued because unless parents see that it's worth 
their student or their child going down a different path, then schools have much more opportunity to value those pathways. If parents want high scores, high university acceptance, then schools will feel that they have to deliver that and therefore that's the narrative they sell to their students. And I think that's a a huge societal shift that's not actually necessarily within the education system, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because just with the teaching of English, for instance, at some stage during the year, I will say to the kids, this exam does not matter. Mm-hmm. This exam does not define you. You have to pick your time. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a, an Indigenous, mm-hmm. if you like, approach. You know, everything has its time. Everything has its time. So mm-hmm. you, you pick the right moment to say it to kids. And I've seen kids, I've seen kids literally just about collapse with, with relief. Yep. At having that pointed out to them that that they are not going to be judged a failure because they haven't met the expectations. And to be honest, that kid that gets 99.94, if their attitude is an unhealthy one, they're going to fret for the rest of their life that they then get 99.95. And so it goes on down the chain. And, yeah, you have to debunk this notion that scores actually matter and the other thing that you have to do in order to, for that to, to occur is, and again, this is speaking from the point of view of an English teacher, is to say, listen, it's your voice. I want to know what you think. I don't mm-hmm. want you to tell me what you think I want you to think. I want to know mm-hmm. what you think. And then I'll, I'll give you some assistance about, about shaping what you're writing. But essentially, it's got to come back to, well, it's truth. It's about your truth. I'm not, you know, it's got to be anchored in the text. Uh, you can't just write anything. But, yeah. It's got to be yours. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it's a bit a bit like being seen in a smaller classroom. You're interested in me. Wow. Mm. Um, but that's that takes a bit of diplomacy, I suppose. I wouldn't say outright inveigling, but you are, you're trying to persuade kids that what they have to say actually matters. It does matter. I've said to my students all the time, I would much prefer to see something that I've never thought of before. Even if the language is a little bit clunky, you know that I, that's what that's where I come in. You know, right? Like I'm I'm there yep. to shape and to edit and to support you. But I want to see an idea that I've never thought of. That's so much more refreshing and exciting for me as a teacher than for you to just regurgitate something that I've said. Can I just talk about um, my favourite teacher? Please. Uh, this is somewhat ironic. I'll name drop right now. Okay, I'll mention Sammy J. <laughs> okay, current. You know well-known Melbourne comedian, current breakfast presenter on um, ABC Melbourne in the mornings. So so Sammy talks to his favourite teacher one day on International Teachers' Day and he talks to this guy and I used to work with this bloke, right? Now, um, here's the connection. This bloke and myself went to two uh, different schools uh, 10 or 12 years apart. He's much younger than me and he's still old. Much younger than me, but we both we both had, but we both had the same teacher, and I felt as though if I had to put my finger on what made this teacher such a good teacher, it just came down to the fact that for the first time I felt as though he was listening mm-hmm. to me. I don't know whether he sensed that I was risking putting my opinion out there, and when I say risking putting my opinion out there, let's face it, it's not the coolest thing to do. It hasn't been since Adam was a boy, to put your, put your opinion out there in front of your peers. But I think he sensed that vulnerability and I got the impression that he, he seriously was listening. Mm. Yeah, he had that 
ability to be able to properly listen. And I suppose from that point onwards, yeah, it was like I was reborn in, a, in, in terms of my presence in that school. Anyway, there's my story. So the last question I want to ask you both is about big life lessons. So lessons that you've learned in life that have really stuck with you, shaped you, changed you. Jen, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Why not? I always tell the kids about this one. I say my dad used to always say this to us, still says it to us. And he just said, whatever you do, just listen to people. Give everyone a chance to speak. You might think that they're talking absolute rubbish, but you never know what you can learn. Um, and I think that's, yeah, the biggest lesson that I've taken through life with me is just to give everyone a chance to say what they want to say and then be aware of what you can learn from them. That's a good one. What about you, JR? Uh, yes, along those lines, I always say to kids, uh, you listen to the least popular teacher, listen to them because we'll say something that you might not you might not think is relevant now but at some stage during the course of your life, it will be relevant. And that goes with anybody, anybody who's in a situation where they've been on the planet longer than you. There's going to be some wisdom that's going to come out of their mouths. That's the first thing. And the other thing I would, I would appreciate as, as a, a life lesson is fear. You must confront your fear. You must, you must not be scared of change. And I'm not talking now about weasel words, corporate change. I'm talking about change that enables you to act on your dreams, change that will mean that at some stage in your life you don't look back and have any regret. You've got to be able to take a risk, risk failing, trust that you're going to be you know, surrounded by love from family and friends around you and that within you anyway you're going to find a, an inner strength. I reckon that's an imp- a pretty important listen to impart to kids particularly kids at a senior level yeah because as I said mm-hmm. there's always that kid that goes oh I should have got 99.95 not 99.94 mm. but obviously we've got kids that are going to finish up at the end of the year and they'll, they'll miss out on courses and and whatnot and they they have to be told no <laughs> this doesn't define you face your fear failure you know, pick yourself up you'll be right but you went for it you went for it. That's mm. the most important thing. And continue to go for it in life. Yes. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for all of your time and for discussing texts and life and education and everything. It's been so wonderful. And, I mean, it's so nice to be able to have you all to myself for a couple of hours when we're always rushing in and out of that staff room. It's just been lovely. Thanks for giving us a, a place to talk about these things. Thanks for listening to me have a rant for a while. It's <laughs> for, for me just to wrap it on. Anytime. I do love your rabbiting on, though, Jaya. We always love your storytelling. Yeah. Thank you.